0: Okay, well, it looks like it's about that time. If you are not intending to be here to learn about pre-modern exegesis and whether it's a more Christian hermeneutical approach, you're in the wrong place. Hopefully, you're all here. We're going to be assessing today an ancient modern approach to biblical theology and giving special attention to Craig Carter's volume, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. So that's the goal today. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to to us and to your goodness. For your goodness, and Lord, we do pray even as we uh, seek to be faithful and focused in all every aspect of our of our of our lives. Lord, help us to be so with respect to our study, our hermeneutics, and to with our theology as well. Lord, we ask your uh, your blessing on this time. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay. I'm going to jump right into this by uh, giving you the opening words of Craig Carter's interpreting scripture with the great tradition. This is how he opens his preface. The conventional wisdom concerning biblical hermeneutics, he says, among the vast majority of evangelical biblical scholars today goes something like this. We should interpret the Bible like any other book. The sole purpose of exegesis is to try to understand what the original author meant to communicate to the original audience in the original situation. The text has only one meaning, namely the original human, what the original human author meant to say. Allegorical interpretation is dangerous because it allows people to read any meaning whatsoever into the text. Maintaining a commitment to the authority of the Bible depends not only on not departing from the single meaning of the text discovered by historical study. And then Carter comes and gives his assessment. In this book, I argue that every single component of the conventional wisdom described in the above paragraph is wrong, or at the very least, highly misleading. I argue that we must interpret the Bible in a unique manner because it is uniquely inspired. It's going to be a theme that comes back several times. The purpose purpose of exegesis is to understand what God is saying to us today through the inspired text as opposed to what uh, he has said or in addition to what he has said. And so with these rather provocative words, uh, Carter commences his argument, and I'll summarize it here in four points here. So his preliminary solution to the problem of grammatical historical interpretation is premodern exegesis according to the pattern of Christian Platonism, which marked the early centuries of the Christian church, in order to provide us a great tradition. And these are three phrases, catchphrases, that dot the entirety of this book. So what we have here is, in the great tradition is a theological standardization of the Christian faith that stands as the benchmark against which all biblical interpretation since needs to be measured. Carter is not arguing comprehensively for this, uh, for this, for this uh, contemporary notion of theological interpretation. He speaks highly of it, but this is not his burden uh, to defend an an entire model of theological interpretation of scripture. However, what he is doing here creates the foundation for and the warrant in order to carry out uh, the theological interpretation of scripture successfully. Okay, so, uh, so his goal here is to, uh, to uh, propose a hermeneutical approach that is capable of sustaining uh, the theological interpretation of scripture as it is being practiced in uh, contemporary uh, uh, evangelicalism today. And his approach is generating quite a bit of interest um, in the evangelical biblical theological theology movement that really has been ongoing since around the mid-1990s, and the applause of each side for the other has become a little bit louder. Carter specifically mentions the biblical theologies of Jim Hamilton, Greg Beale, Wellam Gentry, Tom Schreiner, and Andreas Kostenberger as operating on a hermeneutical trajectory that is in line with his own. He's also teamed up with Matthew Barrett several times, prominently as co-belligerents in promoting uh, this biblical theological cause. So, if 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 Southern Baptist Seminary was ground zero for uh, the for the conservative biblical theological theology movement. Um, it's sort of shifting to Midwestern uh, in terms of this particular approach that's being advocated here by Carter. Uh, that's, that's a generalism here, but I, I think it's, it's safe to say it that way. Okay. Carter suggests in the opening chapter of his book that these biblical theologians that I've just mentioned uh, may not have gone quite far enough but he applauds their trajectory. They're going in the right direction. Uh, Carter's sources and audiences are by no means limited to a conservative evangelical one, um, or even to evangelicals in the broadest of senses. Uh, he freely admits dependency on several new orthodox thinkers. Uh, he has mixed reviews of Bart. He's come out of a pure Barthian approach and has some, some reservations there, but he has high praise for Brevard Childs and especially for John Webster, uh, who he views as the greatest theolo- theologian of his era. These are pioneer thinkers, he understands, and seminal influences on his approach. And he also has uh, high praise even for Roman Catholic thinkers because this is all part of the great tradition. And I think, you know, my first critique here is this is a much too generous orthodoxy. Uh, His circle is way bigger than it has any right to be. But there there are limits to his circle, and there is something that lies decidedly outside of Carter's circle of co-belligerents, and the giant that Carter wants to slay is the grammatical historical method, and with it, the historical grammatical method, okay? He sees these as cut from the same cloth not exactly sharing identity, but cut from the same cloth. This leaves Carter training his guns rather awkwardly on theological liberals and some very conservative thinkers, originalist thinkers, such as fundamentalists and and dispensationalists, which uh, puts me in rather awkward company and really gives us a reason to give some sort of an answer to it as well. So, my goal in this presentation here is to briefly introduce the notion of theological interpretation of Scripture. There's going to be a follow up to this uh, session. Uh, Dr. Meyer is going to be uh, presenting here that will give, uh, put some meat on this and give more examples. Uh, but so I'm just going to introduce this to the degree necessary to introduce and critique the notion of premodern exegesis, which I argue represents a significant threat to the accessibility, integrity, and authority of the Christian scriptures. Okay, so we want to discuss here what theological interpretation of scripture is and why it demands or, 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 or rests upon uh, premodern exegesis. So let's, let's jump into this idea of theological interpretation, and I want to start here with, and, and for a couple of reasons. One, if my thesis is correct, it actually comes first in the discussion. Um, I, I'm, I, I see as I read Carter that there is already a decided, uh, he, he's already confirmed the way he's going to read the Bible. Now he's trying to look for warrant for it, okay, which we're all guilty of it at times, but it seems pretty stark here. So the idea of theological interpretation is not an intrinsically bad one. We all engage in some level of theological uh, interpretation every day. It's it's really the height of self-deception to imagine that you don't, right? It can't be helped. Um, the very first stage of of theological interpretation, I'm going to call the analogy of scripture, the analogia scriptura, simply means that when we do fresh exegesis, the aggregate of all our previous exegesis comes to bear on the exercise. We know as inerrantists that there are no consist contradictions in the Bible, and so we compare Scripture with Scripture, and we submit our exegesis of the more obscure passages uh, to the settled results of the more abundant and clear texts. So that's the analogy of Scripture. So for instance, when we read James chapter 2, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, we immediately interpret this verse in view of Romans 4 which has a long and thorough discussion about justification and leads us to the conclusion that a person is justified by faith alone. And so, so we, we, we bring to bear the clear text here into our discussion. Hope we all agree on that. But sometimes this analogy of scripture, it goes further to what I might call the analogy of faith. Now, I know sometimes these are used as synonyms and I, and I, and I get it. Uh, at the same time, I think there is... Uh, um, methodologically here and advance here, whether you call it by this name or another. Uh, uh, Some see the analogy, uh, um, excuse me, what I mean by the analogy of faith exceeds the idea that clear and abundant scriptures influence our interpretation of other scriptures, but that theological paradigms developed out of our collective exegesis may also come to bear on further exegesis. And again, we do this all the time. For example, we read in Hebrews chapter 6 that it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. And what do we immediately begin with? A theological assumption of eternal security, right? At least most of us do. Maybe, maybe not everybody here, but I think most of us would begin with that assumption and, it, and it's a theological construct that we've developed out of a, a, a number of texts, and hey, we've built a theological statement here. And again, that's unobjectionable. In fact, I think this practice finds firm warrant in the Bible itself. Uh, the New Testament has a whole range of terms that it uses to communicate the idea of condensed summaries of the essentials of the Christian faith. Paul talks in 2 Timothy of the didaskalia, the teaching, He also talks about the paradosis or the tradition many times. Luke uses the word didache. These are are apparently summaries, some of them apparently recorded, even recited or sung within churches uh, that are a condensation of the central message of the Christian faith. We find examples of this too. Uh, Paul lists matters of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, And he breaks into something of a cadence that lets us know it's something that's either recited or perhaps sung. Some have pointed out as many as 13 of these primitive creeds in the Bible itself. But as time passed, these traditions began to multiply and a desire for unanimity began to grow. And the Apostles' Creed was the first and earliest answer to this desire. Its origins are some shrouded in some mystery here, but it's very early. Uh, The Nicene Creed was the grand culmination of the first ecumenical council uh, in AD 325. It was revised in 381 at Constantinople. This was the second of the great ecumenical creeds. And the third is the Athanasian Creed, which, again, the origins are somewhat shrouded in mystery, uh, probably from late 5th century or early 6th. Um, And these three ecumenical creeds together are sometimes called the great Tradition. They're ecumenicals because it's before the church split into two: the East and the East and the West traditions. Okay, so this is the great tradition to which uh, to to which uh, Carter is is referring. This unanimity is routinely overstated, firstly, um, and the unity didn't last. Right, the church split most first into Eastern and Western traditions, but then into scores of splinter groups. The Reformation only accelerated this, right? Uh, So there's all kinds of creedal confessional traditions ongoing in Europe. And what we see here is the third step in theological interpretation, and that's the regula fide, the rule of faith, the practice of imposing by force whole confessional traditions on every man's reading of scripture and even on national readings of the scripture. So this is the rule of faith. It's an imposition of a specific confessional standard. And we find that Europe was really bathed in blood at this point because of the wars that came out of uh, these, these conflicts here. And so what ends up happening in the middle of the 17th century, uh, there is a realization that this is going, this has gone too far. And so, we have the peace of Westphalia, something of a watershed, this is sort of a high mark of this conflict, that brought to at least, not so much to an immediate close, but it begins to decline this bloodshed. Uh, And so, the idea of a more purely secular state begins to take hold, and warfare on the basis of confessions alone began to dissipate. But this peace, according to Carter, came at a terrible price— In order, sorry, not keeping up here. So here's the price here that Carter says uh, was paid. In order to build a shared and peaceful moral order, enlightenment luminaries developed a non-sectarian, non-subjective and scientific method for reading the Bible. We need an objective reading, not a confessionalist one. It's interesting that the Bible still remains the standard uh, here, uh, it, it, which is why we sometimes speak in terms of broadly Christian tradition, Christian Western tradition, because the Bible is still recognized as the book, but there needs to be a, a an objective way of reading it. And that method, according to Carter, was the historical critical method. By stripping out all of the supernatural elements in the Bible, both in terms of its content and its production as a book, and establishing a strict public rule of interpretation, the historical critical method successfully prevented clerical elites from leveraging ecclesiastical authority um, and, uh, and prevented them from uh, using transcendent mystical appeals to special knowledge, dubious interpretive methods such as allegory and typology and anagogical readings to impose their will on the masses. And this measure, in theory, would unite the Western world and reduce internecine warfare and it did in some senses, but not in others. The mainline denominations fell in line. Okay. The result was that the various confessional traditions lost much of their public voice and the seculum. The state assumed a much larger role in the name of public unity and peace. The church survived, but less strictly confessional churches began to gain market share. Evangelicals, fundamentalists, but they were corrupted too, Carter argues, by a lesser manifestation of the historical critical method, the grammatical, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, grammatical uh, the historical grammatical approach. And Carter's desire, if I can summarize it here, is to restore this lost authority to the church by setting aside the historical critical and grammatical historical methods with all of their sterile received laws of language and to reassert the more spiritually attuned hermeneutical methods practiced in the early church, methods that gave us the great tradition. This includes not only the very earliest methods used by the apostles in interpreting the Old Testament, but also the fourfold sense used by the earliest church, and I have that detailed here. Um, I have two two sides to this. You've got the Hellenistic Judaism that uh, gives us the Jewish Kabbalah and the fourfold sense: literal, allegorical. Elusive and mystical. The elusive is the one that's a little bit uh, doesn't match up quite as well to the others. In the early church, you've got the literal interpretation of text according to their exact denotation, as conventionally accepted. Allegorical or typological is the interpretation of text in layered or representative senses that give it additional symbolism that is often hidden to all but the eye of faith the tropological or moral reading, and then the anagogical. We're going to come back to this one because it's very interesting. This is the interpretation of a text in its spiritual or mystical sense, okay? And this is the legacy, uh, Carter says, of Christian Platonism, uh, which he wants to uh, commend here, okay? So by interpreting the Bible this way, and especially with strict fidelity to ecumenical creeds, this is the inviolable theological standard that stands behind many expressions of the theological interpretation of Scripture. What the, by what theology are we going to interpret the Scripture? The great tradition is the answer that Carter would give. And uh, so, so to that end, let's just talk just a little bit about that. Daniel Trier uh, has given us a good definition of this. He's got a book on this. He's sort of a, a key spokesman for uh, this, this, this approach within conservative evangelicalism. He offers us a definition in a sort of a condensed, if you want to, if you want to get a quick introduction to this, this article here uh in the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology is very good uh, to give you a sort of a, a quick summary of the of the idea. So here's his definition. The theological interpretation of Scripture is the reading of biblical texts that consciously seeks to do justice to their nature as the Word of God. They're unique. Embracing the influence of theology on the interpreter's inquiry, context, and methods, not just his results. So if I can unpack that just a little bit here, number one, he consciously seeks to do justice to the nature of the Bible as the word of God. Now that might, that might sound like so much uh, nothing, but what he's saying here is that the Bible is a supernatural book that describes a supernatural God doing supernatural things with the result that the Bible should be read supernaturally, to use a title of a recent book. Secondly, it embraces the influence of theology, which by itself is unavoidable, but which unfolds here as a deliberate subordination of one's exegesis to an authoritative body of dogma that is inviolable, which is in the book under review, the great tradition. And I think what we end up doing is moving into that third stage of theological interpretation, the regula fide, the rule of faith. In fact, Trier admits as much on page seven of this article. He uses this phraseology uh, as, as as part of his discussion. And this influence we find, thirdly, has not felt just in the bare exegesis of the interpreter, but also his context and methods. And so there's going to be, I think, an an emphasis here on what the Bible is saying vis-a-vis what it has said, which demands a necessary adjustment to method so that it becomes decidedly less objective and more subjective. And these are the terms that Trier uses. I'm not just I'm not putting my commentary on this. This, These are the terms that he uses. Trier goes on in the next page of his essay to identify Karl Barth as the great pioneer in making this hermeneutical breakthrough and introducing it to the Theological Academy. Significantly first at at Yale University, George Lindbeck, but then spreading uh, figures like Stanley Hauerwas, Stephen Fowle comes up. Um, and asserting then, influence on both mainline and evangelical theological method. And he said that Bart does the, the, the following three things. Number one, Bart cast dispersions on the supposed objectivity of the historical critical method. So far so good. I'm, I'm glad he did that. Secondly, he recognized the necessary influence of subjective factors in interpretation. Bard is well known for his understanding of the scriptures as a, as a, as a, as a collection, an anthology of, of people's experiences, their, their encounters with the divine, and the words there act as a hinvice to, to biblical meaning, so a pointer to divine meaning. So you don't actually get the meaning from the words. Words are not able to communicate an ineffable God and all that is divine, and so we need to have a pointer to the Christ encounter that takes place above the text, and that is where meaning is actually uh, found, okay? So, uh, the necessary influence of subjective factors in interpretation, but he also sought to minimize this subjectivity uh, of the individual and sought to see that subjectivity in the collected witness of the historical church. So, it's not just Every person interpreting as is right in his own eyes, but rather the whole church as a collective deciding what the scripture says, which is why his great work of of literature uh, that we know him for is church dogmatics, right? Church dogmatics. And of course, this is a a somewhat, uh, maybe an anachronistic to use this, but a pre-modern approach. This is what the church today is saying about what God is saying to us. So this leads us then to our major discussion here of pre-modern exegesis. Pre-modern exegesis supplies, if I may, um, the the, the essential warrant for biblical theology as practiced in conservative evangelicalism today, or so Carter wants it to be. It also anchors that effort to a level of objectivity that is lacking in unqualified postmodern approaches. I'm going to suggest that there's still insufficient objectivity here, but at least it it, it mutes some of the problem. And if I may interrupt myself here, it seems to me that uh, the, this, this discussion has a feel, again, of an established practice looking for warrant a posteriori, okay, after the fact. In other words, conservative biblical theology from Gerhardus Vos to the present has been engaged heavily in typological interpretation all along because it's only the only way they have to sustain the conclusions that they've already come to. But there's long been this uneasiness that that's not the way we read anything else, okay? We only read the Bible this way. So what are the solutions? Well, there there are t- two points here I'd like to make. One, bridge. Uh, is in, the, in, one must read the Bible as a completed literary work in order to understand its parts, an idea that flows from whole canonical hermeneutics. This is something that really blossomed middle of the 20th century. Brevard Childs and other contemporary evangelical uh, biblical theologians have offered this appeal to canonical hermeneutics. It goes something like this, when you're writing a mystery novel, the, the author needs seeds the, the whole story with clues that the discerning read, reader sometimes picks up, but the undiscerning reader doesn't, but that everyone at, at the end of the book can, can, can see after the whole plot is revealed. And that's exactly what God has done with the whole Bible. The capital A author, God, seeded the Bible with all sorts of clues hiding in plain sight, A few of which the little a authors may have seen, and some of the readers as well, but most didn't. But that's okay, because there's a literary strategy going on, and when the story ends, modern readers like us can see how it all fits together. Sounds really good, but there are problems here. Two right off, and I'll I'll just put two of them out here. First, the concept of original intent by human authors is totally upended. These human authors are writing, the, the principal intentions that are contained in their writings are not in their minds first, okay? The human authors, to use the words of one, uh, one author, the, 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 the authors are banished from establishing the meaning of their own words. Secondly, and I think this is extremely important here, okay, so one can only see the whole meaning after uh, the Bible is completed. And this is a real problem for people who are living while the Bible is still being written, right? Uh, The fact of the matter is, the Bible is not a murder mystery written strictly for a future audience in which the failure of readers to catch the clues as they read their Bibles for the first time is not particularly problematic. We have the enormous problem of Old Testament readers being clueless about the principal divine intent of their Bibles and pursuing dead-end literal applications over the course of centuries to their spiritual ruin. We have arcane meanings, which are not initially available by grammatical historical means that can only be known after the fact by additional revelation. Okay, so one can see the whole meaning of the Bible only after it is complete. The second bridge here is pre-modern exegesis here. This is Carter and company uh, uh, giving us an additional and I think a troubling layer. Carter gladly concedes, and I think shockingly, Bartian terms, that at least part of the meaning of the text, and very very often the very most important parts of the text, are subjective in nature. They reside in the intersection of a pious reader with the divine as he or she reads. And the meaning that accrues from this event may be more than or other than what was meant in the original words. This is the method that gave us the great tradition. So if I may give my analysis here, one can see the whole meaning of the scripture only above the Bible as it is read, okay? So here, here, here are the tensions that are, uh, that are ongoing uh, in, in these, these solutions here to the problem uh, that uh, typological exegesis is not a normal thing. So let's look at Carter's arguments. What I want to do here is list them all in, in a form of seven theses. They're, they're my theses, uh, but I think they capture uh, the, the central arguments of Carter. I'd like to think uh, that I've been as fair as possible with him, and that he, if he were sitting here in the room, he would say, yes, those seven points, I, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. But uh, you can be the judge. Thesis number one, the Bible is a unique book and thus must be interpreted uniquely says this multiple times. I don't see how we could argue uh, that this is not his position. Irrespective of whether there are shared and public laws of language that govern other literature, the Bible doesn't follow these laws. The God of Scripture is not bound by natural laws. His actions recorded in the Scriptures do not submit to the assured results of science. And the transmission of his book is not restricted by linguistic strictures that are observable in other literature. A literal reading might supply some of what God meant, but it certainly does not supply all that God means for the modern reader. That's thesis number one. Thesis number two, the historical critical method represents a modern, he uses the term Epicurean, I'm more accustomed to using Aristotelian. So if you hear modernist, Epicurean, Aristotelian, we're talking synonyms here. Uh, So the historical critical method represents the modernist approach to hermeneutics and rejects the supernatural elements of the Bible and domesticates its message. And further, the historical grammatical method sported by many conservatives does not alleviate these concerns. So by accepting natural and scientific rules for interpretation, both these methods, historical critical and also historical grammatical, Uh, We remove responsibility for interpretation from the hands of the church and from its most spiritually qualified readers and place that responsibility into the hands of every man, even unbelievers, and worse, the secular academy and even the state. Okay, So that's thesis number two. Thesis number three, Christian Platonism offers us the sure alternative to the Aristotelian-Epicurean approach to hermeneutics and gives us the special guidance necessary to discovering its spiritual message. The disadvantage of Aristotle and Epicurus lies singularly in their rejection of the supernatural, not only in terms of the content and message of the Bible, but also in terms of its transmission from beginning to end. There's no Inspiration, there's no illumination on one end or the other. But platonic thought prioritizes the transcendent other earthly component of reality and recognizes that God uses extraordinary, subjective, even ineffable methods in the transmission of truth to his people. (coughs) Thesis 4. The notion of received laws of language is an assault both on Christian platonism and biblical sufficiency. And I, and I will admit here that I'm exceeding in this point uh, Carter's material. I'm leaning a little bit on an email that I received in, in response to a series of blog posts that I wrote on the received laws of language a few years back. I think Carter would resonate with that email, uh, and so I'm going with it. Uh, Scientific rules for hermeneutics built on the premise of common sense or common usage are not only a nod to scientism or Aristotelianism, they also suggest a very human standard of authority that is inconsistent with the doctrine of sola scriptura. God is the one who makes any rules that apply to hermeneutics, and he illustrates their usage in the Bible itself. That's where we find them. We find them illustrated in the scripture. Thesis number five, there are objective patterns to use when reading the Bible, but they are found principally in the approach developed and used in the early church to establish the great tradition. These patterns begin with the apostolic use of the Old Testament in the writing of the New Testament, which is demonstrably, in his view, not literal on a great many occasions. These non-literal methods that used by the apostles are then expanded and extrapolated further. Um, and uh, reach full maturity in the pre-critical methods of the patristic and especially early medieval medieval Christian church. And so the fourfold sense of scripture emerges, not as the last word on the matter, but a key chapter of Christian hermeneutical development that we should not have lost. Thesis number six. The Christian rank and file have never given up on the Christian platonic approach to hermeneutics, and this should alert us to the aberrance of these rules established by the modernist academy. If, in fact, God has truly communicated his word according to scientific rules, the Christian majority, led by the indwelling spirit, would have recognized this. But the fact is... Christian everyman has persisted throughout the centuries in reading the Bible supernaturally in the face of modernist influences, and this suggests that the modernist is incorrect. The ability to read the Bible supernaturally does not lie in the purview of scholars, but in the voice of the whole church, including its untrained majority. Thesis number seven, the recovery of church dogmatics. Canonical theology, paleo-orthodoxy or retrieval, the retrieval approach, and I have some figures here, some representative figures, represent positive steps towards the recovery of Christian Platonist ideals in both hermeneutics and biblical theology. So these displace the sterility of historical critical modernists on one hand and the more broadly orthodox corrective to the dogmatic sectarianism which, which uh, led to the bloodshed in, on the continent. So for the balance of our time, I'd like to answer these one by one, if I may. So thesis one, Oops. that the Bible is a unique book and thus must be interpreted uniquely. Fact is that the Bible is in some senses unique. I have to concede that. It's the product of divine inspiration. And for that reason, it's inerrant, perspicuous, complete, and sufficient to meet every exigency of life. It's dual authorship is something of a uniqueness as well. But I put a caveat on that one, right? The miracle of inspiration is precisely designed to contain that uniqueness. John Frame gives this definition of inspiration, and I find it outstanding. Uh, Inspiration is a divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. I like that definition, which is to say that the very purpose of inspiration is to reduce the number of possible intentions of each biblical statement in every case to one. A single intention shared univocally by both authors. Uh, Frame compares this to the theanthropic Christ. Uh, So the theanthropic Christ, Jesus, uh, has two natures and two wills, but there is never even the slightest bit of conflict of intention or expression, okay? And so he says, that's exactly the way the, spirit, the, the scripture is. Now, you could probably run too far with that analogy, but I think it's, if we could keep it contained, I, I, think it's a good, I think it's a good comparison. We'll say more about the received laws of language in a little bit here, but for now, I simply want to say that if such laws exist, they are not laws independent of God that bind him externally. Like all the natural laws, logic, morality, that Adam was aware of prior to the giving of the word of God, these are extensions of his most perfectly logical and ethical and linguistic self. They're projections of his nature in the phenomenal realm. He is bound by them only in the sense that he is bound by his own nature and decree, okay? The implication here is that the linguistic capacity that comes to mankind as part of the divine image is bound to God's rules of language and not the reverse. Drawing attention here to the fact uh, that the capacity for language and even its original structures uh, were not of human origin, but divine. The capacity to understand propositional language and to reciprocate and speak to others is ours by divine grant not by human ingenuity. God invented language for the very purpose of revealing himself and his intentions to his creatures, and that purpose was perfectly realized. When God said to Adam, don't eat the apple, Adam did not stare stupidly back and say, whatever do these vocal signs mean? He recognized them. He understood them without assistance. He didn't say, I have no completed canon, and I have no great tradition." I have no way to understand the full implications of these words. Perhaps I need to have an existential Christ encounter in order to complete my understanding. Now, he knew uh, immediately what the words meant because those words were enough. Words are an adequate medium for their intended purpose, and meaning is wrapped up entirely in them. And those words can never mean what they never meant. Because if meaning is to be found only after or above the words, then the words to that degree degree become unnecessary. The sacred scriptures really become irrelevant and dispensable. This is not a high view of scripture. I mean, Bart is often credited with having a high view of scripture. But if this is as high as he gets, it's not high enough. Not anywhere near high enough. We note finally that while the historical critical method of interpretations operates on an anti-supernatural presupposition, the grammatical historical method does not. This is an extremely important distinction that Carter never really makes carefully. The historical critical interpreter places himself over the biblical text and becomes a critic on the basis of his own worldview of the feasibility of that message. And so if that message is incompatible with his brute scientific worldview, then he does not so much doubt the author's intention, he doubts the truth of the words. The grammatical historical interpreter, however, simply asks what the words meant in their particular syntactical arrangement and historical setting, and then he submits to them. He does not seek to conform the text to his own worldview, rather he conforms his worldview to that supplied in the text. His interpretive act, in this case, leads to an acceptance of the supernatural, not to its rejection. Thesis two now. I think I might make it. So, thesis two, the historical critical method represents a modernist, epicurean approach to hermeneutics that rejects the supernatural elements of the Bible and domesticates its message, and the historical grammatical method sported by many conservatives does not alleviate this concern. So that's the second one. Carter seems to imply here that the impetus to incise rules from the natural order is an Epicurean notion that has no biblical warrant. But I'd like to suggest that there is a sim- these are simply an expression of obedience to the dominion mandate. It's a recognition that God's ways are always ordered. They're never capricious. This exercise is neither Aristotelian nor Platonic. Both of these pagan approaches leave much to be desired philosophically. I don't think we we can pair Christianity perfectly with either one. If the impulse to live in harmony with natural law and specifically to use language according to the conventions received from God is in fact a human thing and not a Christian thing, I admit to being a target of Carter's criticism. I am arguing, and to his great consternation, that biblical meaning being contained in the text is accessible to believers and unbelievers alike with no actual advantage for the believer. The skill necessary to extracting public meaning of the text is shared by those who read and particularly by those who read well. In this, I follow John Murray's distinction between capacities and perfection in understanding the image of God. All persons receive a slate of capacities that define them as image bearers, but only believers cultivate the attendant perfection. So, for instance, all humans receive a volitional capacity, but only believers choose the good. All humans receive a rational capacity, but only the believer submits to the true. All humans receive an aesthetic capacity, but only the believer loves that which is beautiful and to the point, All humans receive a linguistic capacity, but only the believer appraises those words correctly, welcomes them, and submits to them. I think that's what we find in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Natural man doesn't welcome. But the man with the spirit does. He has the mind of Christ, and so he properly appraises those words. So the meaning is available to all, but the proper appraisal, the welcoming, and the submission, the embrace of those words only belongs to the believer. And that distinction, I think, is, is just critical in, in a great many areas of theology. But for hermeneutics, it means that access to biblical meaning is shared by all image bearers, and the privilege of appraising its significance and suggesting spiritual applications rests in the hands, ideally, of those who both read carefully and believe rightly, which is why we have a seminary, right? To develop hermeneutical skills and to cultivate Christian orthodoxy and spirituality, Okay. Because those are the ones who are best capable not only of finding the meaning, but also the, the significance of the scripture. It's not because we're Aristotelians. Thesis number three. Christian Platonism offers us the sure alternative to the Aristotelian or Epicurean approach to hermeneutics and gives us the special guidance necessary to discover its spiritual message. And it's on this point that I'm probably going to be most harsh. I've already tipped my hand that I am enthusiastic neither about Aristotelianism or Platonism as adequate media for, uh, for pairing with the Christian message. Carter is correct in criticizing here Aristotelianism for rejecting the supernatural. He is right for, rege- for criticizing them for focusing exclusively on imminent aspects of the Christian faith, the here and now aspect. And for giving us modernism. But he's strangely quiet about the devastating impact that Christian Platonism had in the history of the church, which is very well documented. Okay, let me see if I can expand this. Unlike Aristotle, who viewed the material as ultimately real and seated knowledge in sensory observation and rational discourse, Plato viewed immaterial forms as ultimately real and seated knowledge in intuition and spiritual discourse. Plato had a low view of the material, phenomenal, and a very high view of the immaterial, spiritual, and mystical. When paired with Christianity, Platonic thought led to a widespread suspicion of all things material. That shows up, of course, in their eschatology. There cannot possibly be an earthy millennium. And, 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 and heaven is reduced to the beatific vision where we sort of gaze on Christ, the face of Christ, for all eternity. And, 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 and anything that is material or earthy about either one of these things is, is just not very spiritual. But, but there's, other, there's other manifestations here. Docetism. Christ couldn't actually have become a human. He just appeared to be. Asceticism. You know, abusing of yourself because your your body is the source of all sin. Mysticism, various forms of monasticism, some quite bizarre, theosis, uh, or the absorption into the divine, and uh, the greatest concern here this morning or this afternoon: Gnosticism. Gnosticism, as the label suggests, argues among other things that those who engage successfully in spiritual ascent or anagoge via ascetic measures and mystical exercises, may reach a place of spiritual enlightenment where they become privy to secret and ineffable knowledge reserved for the very most pious. This secret knowledge, or gnosis, earned them the status of true Gnostics, or the knowing ones. It is incidentally, this ascent, this anagoge, into in the mystical realm that gives us the label for the fourth and highest of the fourfold senses of Scripture, the anagogical sense. Okay, Who can have the anagogical sense of Scripture? Only the true Gnostic who has completed his ascent. Gnosticism became, uh, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, became, uh, by common consent, the greatest existential threat to Christianity during its first three centuries and perhaps the greatest threat it has ever faced, we still feel its effects today, and I'm feeling them in this book. If I may, I, I, I'm no means saying that Carter is a Gnostic or that the evangelical biblical theology movement is peopled by Gnostics, but I'll go on record in suggesting that this sharp wrong ter- this is a sharp wrong term in the discussion, and the historical precedent is alarming. Maybe a little bit too aggressive. You can saw off my neck afterwards. Uh, I I just don't think a reversion to Christian Platonism is is a step in the right direction. Thesis four: the notion of received laws of language is an assault both on Christian Platonism and on biblical sufficiency. I mentioned earlier that I was borrowing a bit on this point from an email I received to a a defense I made of the received laws of language, in which a respondent argued that if I was borrowing laws from language from anything other than biblical usage, then I am leveling, and I'm quoting the the, uh, email, a direct assault on biblical sufficiency, and so this this criticism is only indirectly pointed at Carter, but I did pick up clues along the way that I think he would resonate with it. So my mentor, Dr. Roland McCune, in this very venue exactly 23 years ago to this day, set out to codify four received laws of language. And, uh, uh, oops. sorry, I didn't list them here. The univocal nature of language, the jurisdiction of authorial intent, the unity of authorial intention, and a textually based locus of meaning. He did not draw these laws directly from the scripture. There's no, they're not stated per se in the scripture. Rather, he argued that they are assumed in the whole of scripture and must necessarily be assumed if successful discourse is to take place. And so the argument is twofold. Firstly, warrant these laws is found neither in direct biblical statement nor in an inductive survey of biblical usage, although we should expect biblical usage to conform to these laws. Rather, it is found in the tacit assumptions of the biblical writers. What did they assume when they wrote? Secondly, authority for these laws, warrant for these laws, is thus derived by means of transcendental argument for their necessity. That is, These laws provide the necessary preconditions for successful discourse, and we cannot live with the implications of any linguistic model that does not use them. So when you came into this room today, you all expected me to speak according to these laws, and you have been, if you've been tracking with me, interpreting my words according to these laws. This is the only way we can possibly communicate. It doesn't mean I can't use figures of speech or genres and such. Uh, But these must be intentional if I'm going to communicate successfully. And you have to recognize my intent if that circle is going to be completed properly. If you have come into this room and assigned meanings to my words that exceed my intent, suggest that my words have a census of that I am unwittingly speaking in types today, or that there is a mystical sense to my words available only to the most holy of listeners, I would tell you that you are wrong. And I would do so very confidently. Why? Because they're my words, right? That's the jurisdiction of authorial intent. And so arguing, I don't believe that Dr. McCune or I are leveling an assault against biblical sufficiency any more than we violate biblical sufficiency by proving the existence of God in the same way, that is, presuppositionally, transcendentally, and in accord with the observed assumptions of the scripture writers. Thesis five, there are objective patterns to use when reading the Bible, but they are found principally in the approach developed and used in the early church to establish the great tradition. And I appreciate here Carter's concern for supplying some parameters on the subjective reading of scripture by pious Christians and the church at large. I don't discount the value of the ecumenical creeds, um, uh, and as, as supplying some guidance for us. The, the scriptures do give weight to the voice of the whole church in settling matters of interpretation and, and application. We've got the Jerusalem Council. We have these references to the paradosis and the didache and such. But these have authority only to the extent that they can be corroborated by the scriptures themselves. That is true also of all the natural laws. And the great tradition falls short of that standard. The hermeneutical methods used in the early church extrapolate dramatically behind anything that can be found, in the, even in, by the most inventive readers in the New Testament. And the theology of the early church is ridiculously diverse. This idea of unanimity is, is bizarre to me. It's, it's rightly said you can prove anything from the church fathers. <laughs> And so this elusive unanimity in the early church that Carter seems to assume doesn't exist. And, and if I may, it's really not the first three centuries of the church. It's really the next three centuries of the church that give us the great tradition. Uh, the, the, the first three centuries of the church, the the the, the Antioch school of, of hermeneutics was much more dominant uh, than the allegorical, the, the the school of origin. Okay, so so he's really sort of picked the the uh, centuries four through six as his, as his inviolable standard. And there's really no reason uh, given why that is it other than that there's a, it's a period of agreement in the church, okay? But I really doubt whether there even is a great tradition. Thesis six, and in some ways, this is oddly the one I, I'm, I'm, I resonate most with here. Uh, the, the Christian rank and file have never given up on the Christian platonic approach to hermeneutics, and this should alert us to the aberrance of the rules established by the modernist academy. I've used this kind of argument myself in the, in the defense of a plain reading of predictive prophecy, which has resulted in a much larger segment of the grassroots believers believing in a dispensational type of eschatology than we find in the academy. And uh, so I appreciate this argument. Still, appeals ad populum are rarely considered powerful arguments in logical discourse. As I suggested above, uh, the significance and application of texts flow from the illuminating work of the Spirit shared by all believers, but the meaning is seated in the words and best discovered by those who are most careful and well-informed readers of those words. Last thesis. Recovery of the of church dogmatics, canonical theology, and paleo-orthodoxy, or the retrieval approach, re- represent positive steps towards the recovery of Christian Platonist ideals. In both hermeneutics and biblical theology. And I'll say that biblical theology has seen explosive growth in the last century it doesn't mean that it's all of a sort or that all of its developments are good. Ironically, biblical theology was first the property of theological modernists before it became the property of various canonical traditions like Voss and Ladd and McLean or of post foundationalism, uh, Bart and Childs, or paleo orthodoxy. Um, When contemporary evangelical biblical theology has made helpful contributions, I still cannot shake the feeling that it's a settled theological tradition in search of biblical warrant. That is, we know what we believe. Now we need to find a way to make the Bible agree with it. So, in closing, I'd like to offer something of a way forward for biblical theology. And and if I can, it seems to me that we are seeing in conservative Biblical theology, something of a fracture developing in that movement. There seem to be two approaches developing here, and one, I think, has much greater promise than the other. Uh, One approach takes Carter's trajectory in a direction that I have suggested has an uncomfortably Gnostic, Barthian feel to it. I'm troubled by his methods and fear that it may facilitate further the growth of postmodernist ideals in evangelical theology. But there is another approach that is more promising, that is developing, and that is to discover in the text textual markers and authorily intended devices that explain the use of the Old Testament in the New without banishing the Old Testament writer from his own intentions. There's just an awful lot of spade work being done right now to discover uh, figures of speech and genres in play in the Old Testament that actually makes sense uh, from the standpoint of the Old Testament uh, of the way the New Testament authors are using those texts. Um, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, this, the biblical theolo- theologians are a little bit inventive here along the way, but they've, they've unearthed some things that I think are just really helpful. Analogy or illusion. Uh, suggesting here that biblical writers routinely point out simple similarities between events without any necessary the- theological implication. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There may or may not be some sort of theological significance. It may simply be a simple comparison. Corpus Linguistics is another the tendency of people to divorce events from their body of literature and apply it with little or no reference to that literature from which it was drawn. So, for instance, we sometimes will speak of having an Achilles heel, and we don't even know the story of Achilles, right? So, this, this, is, this is an instance of corpus linguistics. We, we, the reference has taken on a life of its own without conscious connection to the informing source. Another is prosopological exegesis. This is the recognition that the prophets sometimes spoke in the first person as though they were their own referent. Isaiah, for instance, speaks as though he were the servant. David arguably does the same thing. Uh, uh, Carter actually sort of doubles down on this one. He he actually observes this himself, um, which he didn't give very many good examples, honestly, along the way. And the examples he gave did not do not find much much resistance from those who hold to a grammatical historical interpretation there are there are more than these. you know some are more dubious than others. Even this small sampling may offer options with which you are unfamiliar, and because you've never heard of them, you're rightly suspicious. That's good, right? Um, but to the degree that they can be proven to be part of normal usage and part of the original author's intention. I think we're making progress to, toward finding some of the glue necessary to a comprehensive canonical theology that actually seats its meaning in the text, in the text, rather than above or after it, okay? And so, a conclusion. We need a biblical theology that seats meaning in the text rather than after it or above it. And then secondly, this is an important book. You're going to encounter its ideas in your church in the coming days. It's not all bad, but to quote from the requirements for writing reviews that I have in my syllabus (laughs) for all my classes, all books have strengths and weaknesses, and the student should recognize them. But in the end, he should end with a succinct statement, either of commendation or caution with respect to the overall value of the book for prospective readers. So let me do that. Caution. Uh, I'm concerned that this volume will have the effect of pushing biblical theology in the wrong direction.